I want to begin with a question today, and that question is this. How do you feel about the state of the world? How do you feel about the state of the world? Chances are many of you would have a lot to say about how you feel about the state of the world. When we consider our local situation here in America, there is the heavy weight of government policies at various levels. We have the increased lawlessness and cultural evil that is rampant around every corner sometimes, even as you drive around. There is the burden of a struggling economy that is touching people in a real way. I know we just bought a minivan and gas is really expensive right now. And so we're looking forward to our first filling up of that tank. And there's much more we could say, but more than that, more than our local area, consider the world. There is war in Ukraine. That is wild. That is crazy. It is wicked. People are dying. Believers are suffering. Non-believers are suffering. And the rest of the world is sort of posturing itself to see how can we best position ourselves to be in a Uh, an advantageous state when all of this has come to say and pass. There's uncertainty in the world. So how do you feel about the state of the world? My conclusion is, I can't believe I live here. I can't believe I live here. And maybe you feel the same way. And if you do, there is good news for believers. And that is according to Peter, that by the grace of God, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, By the sanctification of the Spirit, you have been set apart to be an elect exile in this world. You're an alien. You sojourn. This is not your home. And that's an encouragement for us because we know we are looking forward to that day. But it also presents a problem, doesn't it? When you get out your spiritual passport, it says citizen of heaven. But that's not where I am. That's not where you are. And so there's an issue that causes tension. So what do we do? That's the question, right? What do we do while we sojourn here on earth? Well, there are a lot of things that we could do and a lot of advice that is given outside and even inside the church sometimes. Well, we should relocate to a red state, more conservative politics, that's what we need. Or maybe we'll move to a different country altogether. Maybe we'll move closer to family. Maybe we'll buy a gun or multiple guns. Maybe we'll continue or even begin to homeschool our children for the first time. Maybe in light of economic uncertainty, we'll focus all our efforts on building our savings account. That's what we'll do. We'll pad our savings account. We'll stock up food and supplies, maybe, in case there's a run on toilet paper like there was during the pandemic. Got to be prepared. Maybe we'll get more involved in the culture. Maybe we'll try to fight back the evils with more God-pleasing cultural ideals. Maybe we'll invest more of our time in politics, and maybe we'll even find a new church. There are lots of things that we could do, but there is at least one thing that we are called to do that we must do, and that is the very purpose for which Peter says we have been set apart. And it says it right here in verse 2. You have been set apart for obedience to Christ, to be obedient to Christ. And that is what we want to do. That is what we must do. And so whatever you choose to do, that is what we must do. And that is what we want to do today. From his word, we want to hear about how to do that. The title is Live Out Your Salvation. I'm going to now read 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13, all the way to 21. And as I read, I'm going to give you a listening assignment. As I read, I want you to listen for what you believe to be the most important word in this passage. 
Let's read it together. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, and who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What a tremendous passage. And so if I were to ask you, what is the most important word? Well, someone might say in verse 13, it says grace. For by grace you have been saved. That's what we're all about. It's about grace is the most important word. That is an important word. Or what about holy in verses 15 through 16? Holy, God is holy. We are called to be holy. That is what we want to focus our attention on. And we will do that today. Focus our attention on that. Verse 21, you said glory. May the glory of the Lord be seen. It's glory. That's what we want. We want to see his glory. We want him to receive glory. Those are all good words. But I would commend to you that the most important word in this passage is the very first word, therefore. Therefore. And you ask why? It's because gospel obedience is always rooted in gospel realities. Gospel obedience, or we could say gospel imperatives or commands, is always rooted in gospel realities or gospel indicatives, one might say. And this is the consistent pattern of scripture. For example, if I asked you, how do the 10 commandments begin? You might say, oh, that's one of the first things I learned in Sunday school. Thou shall have no other God before me. And while that may be the first command, that is not how the 10 commandments begin. Listen to what God says. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then one might add, therefore, you shall have no other God before me. Therefore, I bought you, I purchased you, I redeemed you in view of what I have done in my great work of redemption. Now, I'm calling you to live a specific way. Which brings us to our main point. In view of God's redeeming work in Christ, live out your salvation. In view of God's redeeming work in Christ, live out your salvation. And our passage here, 13 through 21, is built on the redemptive realities from verses 3 to verse 12, which is why Kirill had him read that. Thank you, brother, for reading that. And if you'll remember, Todd taught on this passage, 3 through 12, about a year and a half ago or so. So you've had a long time to think about the gospel realities, but just in case it's been long, let me go ahead and just give you a short reminder, okay? In verse three, it says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Namely, the main point is that God should be blessed. God should be praised for who he is and what he has done. David says it this way, bless the Lord, all my soul and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, all my soul and forget not all his benefits, who he is, he is holy. 
and all his benefits. What has God done for us? Why should he be praised? In three through five, it says that God should be blessed for the new birth. The spiritual transaction of death to life. He makes you alive together with his son such that now you are born again to a living hope. You possess an inheritance that is unfading, undefilable. It is being reserved for you in heaven. You can't lose it. But even if you start to wonder, but I don't feel like I'm going to make it, by God's power, you are being kept for your inheritance. So it's kept for you and you're kept for it. That should be something that causes us to bless God. But not only that, in verses six through nine, God should be blessed for trials. Trials that prove the genuineness of our faith. Trials that burn like fire and no doubt. There are some of you in this room who are going through trials of various kinds. And it's human nature to want to get away from those trials, to do anything we can. I would rather walk 100 miles to the right and avoid trials than to walk one mile ahead through a serious trial. And yet God is to be praised for trials because what it does is it strips away all that is unnecessary for you like the refining fire does to gold and it reveals that which is truly valuable. That's what we want. You remember what Job said. He knows the path that I take. He knows the path that I take and yet when I have emerged, I shall come forth as gold. That's what we want. Faith, it is proved. The genuineness of our faith is proved such that at the end, we will see praise and honor and glory from the Lord Jesus Christ. A reward from the one that you love. Is that what you want? That's what I want. I want a reward from the one whom my soul loves. And then finally in 10 through 12, God should be blessed for unprecedented grace. Well, what do I mean by that? It means that in this gospel age, when the fullness of the message has been revealed in Christ, he is ascended and on high reigning on his throne. God should be blessed for unprecedented grace because you get to hear more than the prophets did. Those godly men that predicted that Christ was coming, that he would be glorified, they didn't know when or who it was, but you get to know. That's privilege. Because there's a lot of talk these days about what it means to be privileged and who's privileged. And I would contend that every person alive today is the most privileged person in the history of the world because they are living in a time when the fullness of the gospel message is clear. But not only that, not only do you hear more than the prophets, you experience more than the angels. Your gift of salvation, your being born again, your transformation, forgiveness of sins, that is miraculous, such that angelic beings that are in the presence of God with no sin are looking down to say, what is this mystery of grace? Oh, the majesties of God, look at his kindness towards these people. And so they, they desire to look continuously at this beautiful picture that glorifies God for what he has done for his children. So that's where we are coming from. And now, therefore, in view of God's redeeming work in Christ, live out your salvation. As we turn to our passage now, it's structured around three commands. One of them deals with our mind. The other two are going to deal with our actions. And this is a consistent pattern of scripture. You know this, you take a look at Philippians. Philippians chapter two says, have the mind about you so that you'll be of the same mind so that you can live in peace. Have the mind of Christ. Look at him so that therefore you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Chapter four, whatever is true and lovely and pure and above reproach and worthy of praise, think on these things. And then in verse nine, often forgotten. And then all these things that you've seen and learned and heard, practice them. Think and practice. So that's what we are going to get at today. 
So number one on your outline, point number one, live out your salvation by setting your hope in the grace to come. Live out your salvation by setting your hope in the grace to come. A command to hope. And if we're commanded to do something, we better know what it is. So let's talk about what hope is. There are a lot of good answers that could be given, amen, about what hope is. But I found two this past week that are particularly helpful. One commentator says, the possession of present good is joy. Present good. And that's why in verse six, we can have joy in our trials because no matter what is going on, we are the recipients of unprecedented good from God so that we can have joy in our trials, though they cause real suffering and real sorrow. So the possession of present good is joy, but the anticipation of future good is hope. Future good. Or another way to say it, another commentator says that hope is to anticipate with confident longing the fulfillment of God's promises. Hope is to anticipate with confident longing the fulfillment of God's promises. And I think we could all agree that the Bible is filled with promises of God, many of which have yet to be fulfilled. And there are a lot of good places in scripture that we could go. But we don't even have to go outside of Peter's epistle thus far. He has already given us so much to look forward to. Just looking at the context here, this hope that we have. How about taking hold of your true citizenship? You're no longer a stranger. You're no longer in exile, but you are at home with the Lord. Amen, that is what we want. How about this? The full possession of your inheritance. The full possession. We have some of the benefits now, some of the benefits we will receive, but boy, we will get there and we will have them all. A resurrected body. And I say that to my lower back and it has to hope in it because it needs it. Um, How about this? Salvation of your soul, the outcome of your faith, full salvation, forgiveness of sin, full forgiveness of sin, no more sin. Does anyone look forward to that? No more sin and rebellion against the one that we love? And then finally, praise, glory, and honor from Christ, who is the one that we love, and all this and more comes when he comes. Which is why when you read through a lot of Paul's prayers, one of his common themes is the return of Christ. And I'll confess, I do not pray enough in view of the returning of Christ. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We anticipate this future good and we want to take hold of it. And that is what we long for. Now, you might say, wow, that is a lot of good stuff to hope in. Which poses an interesting question. If the hope that we have is so magnificent, all these benefits, why do we have to be commanded to hope for it. Why? Why do we have to be commanded to hope in something that is so magnificent? And I think the answer is because hope does not come naturally for sinful, finite humans. And that's why Peter is going to give us three ways that we can get to the business of setting our hope on the grace that is to come. Here's the first way. The first way we are called to hope is hope fully, fully, completely. It's comprehensive. It's not half-hearted. It's not as if you say, yeah, I've got about 80% of my eggs in the basket of hope and what Christ is going to do, but I'm holding a little bit back just in case things don't work out as I plan. No, that is a lack of faith. We hope fully. I look fully to what is to come. And you might say, whoa, Austin, that, that doesn't describe my hope on a daily basis. My hope actually is lacking. 
what do I do? Well, thankfully, he gives a few more ways that we're called to hope. The second way that we are called to hope is with a mind that is prepared for action. And this is a a great place where we can pull back the curtain on the Greek and give you a great word picture, literally rendered, having girded up the loins of your mind. Now, that sounds silly to us, but back then when men would even wear tunics, these, these robes that would go all the way down, and it's okay for common things, but if a situation arises and when you need to move quickly, war is coming, soldiers are invading, I gotta move fast, I've gotta be ready for action. In order to do that, you had to sort of tuck it around and pull it around and tuck it in so that your legs are free and now you're ready to be agile, you're ready to move freely. And that is what we want to do. We need to have our minds prepared for action because there is no shortage of things that the world will offer you to keep your mind unprepared. I think of the common picture, the couch potato. The couch potato mind is not girded for action. Netflix does not gird us for action. Now, that doesn't mean it's bad. I'm not condemning um, good things that we can watch. Yeah, but I, will, I am saying that there are things that keep us unready, un ready for action, and we need to make sure that we are diligently girding up the loins of our mind. It's a process, it doesn't come naturally. We commit to it and we get it done. So that's the second way we are called to hope, with a mind prepared for action. But then third, we are called to hope with a sober mind. A sober mind. This is, speaks of your motivating influence, okay? And I think it brings to my mind Ephesians 5.18, right? Do not be drunk with wine, or that is debauchery, or that is dissipation. Namely, don't let the governing substance, the motivating influence that is controlling what you say and what you do be something that is not going to help you pursue godliness. Don't let that get in there and take you out of the game and put you on the sideline. But rather, it says, be filled with the Spirit. Let the Spirit come and guide you according to God's word so that you stay laser-focused on that hope that is to come. And so, by God's grace, we will hope fully with a sober mind that is prepared for action. That is the call. So you might ask, well, Austin, what does that look like practically? Let me give you a few examples from Scripture. Absolutely phenomenal examples. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. How does a person do that? How does a person lay down all the riches that the world has to offer at that present time in Pharaoh's court, anything that he wants, and he puts it all aside? How do you do that? You need a laser focus, faith, hope that is looking forward and understanding that the reproach of Christ is greater wealth than all that the the world has to offer. Isn't that phenomenal? What a phenomenal example. Here's another. I was reading through 2 Samuel and I came across the last words of David. His final words could very well be on his deathbed words. And if you have ever known someone on their deathbed, especially if they are a non-believer, it can be one of the most hopeless times. It is, my estate is out of order. I, I, I'm clinging to life with all that I can because it's all that I have. 
and I'm, I'm terrified of what comes next, it, it can be a very hopeless situation. But listen to what David says. I found this phenomenal. For God, oh, sorry, for does not my house stand so with God? He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. On his deathbed, he's not thinking about the state of his kingdom, though he did a good job preparing it for Solomon. We can read about that in Chronicles and in, in, in the Kings. But rather, he's looking at Christ. He says, God has made an eternal covenant with me, and I don't have to worry about it because it's ordered to the last detail. And not only that, it's secure. I can hope in it. And that is where my eyes are, and it is with that mindset that I will go to be with my God and my King. So let's follow their example and set our hope on the grace that is to come. Which brings us to the second point. Live out your salvation by being holy. Point number two, live out your salvation by being holy. And I'm going to read for you now my Greek translation because Peter is really striving to emphasize something for you so that you don't miss it. So let me read this to you. It's going to sound a little wooden, but that's okay. Here it sounds. Uh, As children of obedience, not fashioning yourselves to the former in the ignorance of you desires. I said it was wooden. But as the one having called you is holy, also yourselves holy in all conduct, be. The verb comes at the very end to stress how important it is to get this done. And we understand this naturally, right? You go to a basketball game, and I know we're in Sacramento, but I'm going to use a Warriors example here. Um, Imagine you go to a basketball game, you don't know anything about basketball, and you're sitting there in the stands and they say, tonight's shooting guard, Steph Curry. And he walks on the court and you think, yeah, that guy's in the NBA. He's, a, he's, a, he's probably a good player. No, they don't introduce him like that. How do they introduce him? They say, tonight's starting shooting guard, standing 6'3 out of Davidson College, three-time NBA champion, eight-time NBA All-Star, the first ever unanimous MVP, two-time scoring champion, Steph Curry. They call it out and so that you know, whoa, I better take this guy seriously. I better have my eyes on him during this game because it is important, Right? Another example would be a concert. If, if you like music, if you've ever uh, gone to a concert, you know that the headliner, when do they come on? They come on last, which is a large reason why I don't go to concerts anymore because it ends up being way past my bedtime. But not only do they come on last for emphasis, when do they play their best song? The song that you just want to hear before you go home. Sometimes it doesn't even make it to the encore. It's last. Last, putting things last is a phenomenal way of showing emphasis. And that is what he's getting after. He says, being holy is so important that I'm going to front load it so that you grasp the seriousness of how important this is. So three reasons we should be holy. Number one, the first reason we should be holy is that you are a child of God. You are a child of God. It is by God's design that children should obey their parents. And I love it when the authors of scripture use universal illustrations, right? This isn't something that just pertains to us here in Sacramento, but all over the world, I might add a qualifier, when our minds are thinking rightly about it, we all understand that children are to obey their parents. Although unfortunately in America, sometimes it goes the other way. Um, And it's a serious responsibility. Consider the words of Christ when he confronts the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. He says this, For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. The death penalty. Serious responsibility. 
to obey parents, children. And by God's grace, we are his children. And that's a wonderful thing, but it also can be a problem because we're sinful, which means our sinful nature is tempting us to be conformed to the ignorant desires, to the former passions that we had before we were saved. And I ask you, do you ever struggle thinking about the sinful passions that you had before you were a believer? Boy, I know I do. And sometimes I feel like I'm not going to win the war. In chapter 2, it says that fleshly desires wage war against our souls. And I feel that so heavily sometimes. I just, I throw my hands up and I say, Lord, what can I do? But there's good news. We have the spirit of God dwelling in us. We've been born again to a living hope. We are guarded by the power of God, it says in chapter 1, verse 5. And not only that, we know that God's purpose in our salvation, according to Romans 8, is that he will not allow us to be conformed to our ignorant passions, but rather to the glorious image of his son. That's what he's doing in us. And he does it by his power and we can, we can count on it. So we must be obedient children. That's the first reason. The second reason we should be holy is the one who called you is holy. I love what R.C. Sproul says. He wrote that famous book, The Holiness of God. Listen to this. Only once in scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy, but God is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. But it does say that he is holy, 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 and that the whole earth is full of his glory. So if we want to be holy, we must know what holiness looks like, and that only comes from beholding the one true God. And no doubt, we could go to countless places in Scripture to see this on display, but I've just picked a few. Consider the song of Moses when they've been delivered from Egypt, and they're praying this phenomenal prayer, and he says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? The answer is none. None are like you. He says, who is like you? Majestic in holiness. So he is a holy God, and we see that in his works. David, we've already talked about it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. It's the first thing that comes to his mind in this moment. He is holy. Jesus even continues along that line when he says, when you pray, pray in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, or hagiadzo, be your name. To consecrate, to make holy. May your name, may all that you are, be viewed and regarded as holy in all the earth. That's our first desire. I think as Tim said, God, may you get yours before we get ours. That is a holy God. And then finally, of course, the vision that John has of the throne room, where it says, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And so we must continue to behold the holiness of God if we will be holy. And then the third reason, the third reason you should be holy is that holiness has always been God's plan. For his people. How do we know that? Peter quotes Leviticus. He quotes the Old Testament to show this isn't new with the coming of Christ. No, this has always been God's plan. I'll read Leviticus 11 for you now. It says, for I am the Lord, your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Again, we see that gospel conduct flows from gospel realities. 
He redeemed us. I brought you out to be your God, therefore be holy. Okay? And it is with that that we consider Israel's example. When the nations were to look at Israel, they were to behold a nation that was like none other, one that had been set apart. What are they doing with their formations and that tent in the middle? And they're so strange. They were supposed to be a reflection of a truly holy God to the world that knew no holy God. And unfortunately, they failed miserably. Consider that. When they failed miserably, it failed to show the holiness of God to the world, which was a great shame. And how do we know? Probably the best thing to consider is consider Moses' example. You remember the man, the most humble man on the face of the earth? the faithful, patient, courageous, but dependent leader of God's people? Why doesn't he get to go into the promised land? Because you failed as the leader of my people to show me as holy. Therefore, you shall not enter the land that I am to give them. One failure to show God is holy. And it cost him the promised land. Which is why I think the scripture says that there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It is important. So therefore, let's prioritize holiness. Which brings us to our third reason. Uh, Our third point. Live out your salvation by living fearfully. Point number three on your bulletin. Live out your salvation by living fearfully. And anytime I come to this topic, I want to make sure that I address the question, how do I fear God without being afraid of God. I spend a long portion of my time as the youth minister at our church, and without fail, every time I taught on this topic, I had questions after that went a little bit like this. How do I fear God without being afraid of God? And the reality is it's important to answer that question because if you get it wrong there, it will cause serious problems for you. So we uphold from scripture that believers are not to be afraid of God. You remember 1 John, there is no fear in love for perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And you consider the context that we've already seen. Peter says, you're anticipating a salvation, not judgment. You have the spirit of God. Jesus is your Lord. God is your father. You're not anticipating judgment, but grace, a living hope an inheritance. So we don't need to be afraid of God. He's our father, but believers are called to fear God, which is a reverent respect for his authority and his power. And I want to read for you a verse that is one of my favorite about what it means to fear the Lord. No no doubt you could go all over scripture, Proverbs, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There are many passages that talk about the fear of the Lord, but listen to this one, because I think it captures the kind of fear that we want to have of God. Samuel says to Israel after they asked for a king, and that was a great sin against God because God was their king. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. So a fear of God leads to service of him from a place of love, not a place of fear or a a place that anticipates judgment, but because I love him. Chapter one says, whom you love, you love the Lord Jesus, so obey him and obey the father. And then he says, for consider what great things he has done for you. A fear of the Lord flows from what God has done for us in salvation. Amazing. But then it closes with this. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. 
So there's always a respect for his power, recognizing that he has the ability to chasten, and he does it better than anyone else. So we are called to fear God. And Peter gives two reasons that we should live fearfully. The first reason we should live fearfully is the Father's impartial judgment. Your status as a child of God does not change God's holy standard, right? He renders to each one according to their deeds. There's no nepotism with God. And we understand that there is a special disdain in the world for nepotism. When somebody's family influence affords them opportunities that we couldn't have. Or how about this? Let's take it to the maximum degree. One of your loved ones is brutally killed and you go to the courtroom seeking justice. And there stands the man who robbed you of your loved one. And it comes to find out that he's related to the judge. And the judge says, I want to begin by saying that this was a terrible tragedy and I I feel for all who were involved. But as someone who's related to the person who carried out the crime, I want to vouch for their character. Uh, This is the first incident of that kind and I'm going to let them go free. You would cry, no, no, where is justice? When will justice be done? That's not just. And God is a just God. He will not allow his holy standard to be changed. So to affirm again, you cannot lose your salvation. You are justified by faith and it is secure, but heavenly rewards can be lost. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work, their deeds will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. What's the point? What you do matters. So live fearfully. I love how Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5. Beautiful passage. He says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim. We make it our goal to be pleasing to him, to please him. Why? For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then how does he conclude? Therefore, therefore, knowing that we must give an account to him who renders according to each one's deeds, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We commend ourselves and our deeds to other people because we understand the fear of the Lord and who he is. So that is the first reason that we must fear God, his judgment, his impartial judgment and perfect justice compels us to live fearfully. But the second reason we should live fearfully, possibly the greatest reason of all, is consider the Father's ransom payment. The precious blood of his only son. The king of the universe leaves his sinless throne, walks to the slave market and purchases a rebel at the cost of his firstborn and only perfect son. And so I appeal to the parents in the room. Is there anyone in the world that you would give one of the lives of your children for? How about this? Is there an enemy in the world that you would willingly and joyfully give one of the lives of your children for? I have to answer that question, no, no, there's not. I love my children. And yet this is the gospel that we preach such that we sing how deep 
the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch like me his treasure. The Father ransomed you from your feudal ways of life, from your slavery to sin, from your rebellion against him, from the traditions of man, and he didn't do it with perishable things like gold and silver. On earth, those are the things that we value. Maybe even something that was handed down to us from our forefathers. And no doubt, if there was a scenario in the history of the world where at the judgment seat of Christ, someone could give a ransom payment of what they had earned and amassed on earth for their soul, they would do it. Take everything that I have, everything that I've worked for, even billions of dollars, I give it all to you that I might just have life. But that doesn't mean anything to him. It has no value. It's perishable. So instead, the father gives the blood of a perfect sacrifice, and that is what he values. That is what satisfies his perfect justice. And that, pause, that gives us pause to just consider for the moment the goodness of our father. Think about the goodness of our father. Just listen as I read. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How about Paul? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in him. How about John? In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation of our sins. And how about the Lord Jesus himself? You know it well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is the God that we worship. And that is why we will live out our salvation with fear and trembling because we understand what he paid. We don't want to bring any reproach on that perfect blood offering that he gave in the gift of his son. But it's amazing. Peter is not done. After these verses, he concludes in verses 20 to 21 by telling us more about this son in whom this son who was sent by the father to secure his ransom payment. Listen to this before the foundation of the world, it was the son who was chosen by the father to be the savior of the world. In the last times, It was the son who was sent by the father into the world to save sinners. And it is the resurrection and the exaltation of the son having been raised from the dead by the father that proves salvation is secure for those who believe and the foundation of your hope that is in God will never be shaken. Amen? So when our hearts consider the infinite value of the father's ransom payment, we will live fearfully not wanting to bring any reproach upon that infinite cost that he paid to bring rebels like us into his family. In conclusion, it is fitting that our passage ends with the culmination of God's redemptive work in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the preeminent gospel reality and the only true foundation for all holy living. We need eyes to see him so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So to come back to a familiar word. Therefore, in view of God's redeeming work in Christ, hope in the grace that is to come. 
be holy and live fearfully. And let's labor with one another to live out our salvation in obedience to Christ as elect exiles until we obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving us the gift of your Son. Father, we are moved to see what you have done for us in sending the Beloved. By grace, we have been saved through faith, not of ourselves. We give you all the glory and we ask, Father, that you would give us eyes to always be fixing them on Christ, who is the author and founder of our foundation, of our salvation. And we ask that you would, in view of those redemptive realities, give us by your spirit the power we need to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.